0: Hello, everybody. I am Mary Fiflice. Uh, I'm here with my colleagues, uh, Jim McIntyre and Josh Fulton. And I them if they'd like to introduce themselves more in a moment, if they can. Um, I teach history and political science and sociology here at the college. Um, and we are here to discuss the book by our one book, one college for this year, 1919 by Eve Ewing. Um, which is a a compilation of sorts of volume of poetry related to the race riots in Chicago in 1919. So with that, I'll allow my colleagues to introduce themselves and then we'll we'll go from there.
1: I'm Jim McIntyre. I'm also one of the members of the history department uh, here to discuss the connection between race and violence in American history. All right,
2: and I'm Josh Fulton. Uh, I am another member of the history faculty uh, here at Moraine Valley, uh, and uh, as well, interested to kind of discuss how uh, this particular series of of poems, you know, connects not only to 1919, but what connections we can make to today.
0: Right, and the three of us were talking earlier just about the idea that, you know, I don't don't know if it's so much as a caveat, but just an understanding of the fact that the three of us are, our three Caucasian professors talking about a subject that's related to African American history. Um, and so I think maybe the, what I'd say for speaking for myself is I'm doing the best I can here um, uh, and, and acknowledging that there are obviously gaps in the things that I could never know and never experience on uh, not being a person of color myself. So, um, okay. So one of the things that we were talking about before was just th- th- these this core themes that seem to kind of stand out in, in this book all the way through. Um, that relate obviously that correlate from 1919 uh, to to now, and I don't know if we want to start off by talking a little bit about 1919, or or just should we assume that the audience probably knows a little bit something about this, um, or do one of you want to explain, maybe just talk about briefly, or I can about briefly about what happened.
2: Yeah, maybe if we want to give a quick overview, uh, sure. you know, Yeah, you just or to- Jim, do you want to go ahead? Yeah.
1: It's- this is your area of expertise, sir. <laughs> <laughs> World War One and just after, I will I will yield the floor, my friend. All right, all right, all right. So, so
0: oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. No, I'll, I'll say one thing. You jump in whenever I if it's to clarify whatever I need to say. So the the, the story surrounds basically. Um, 17-year-old Eugene Williams, who was swimming um, in it was July 1919 in mm-hmm. Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. in what I always tell my students that surprises them, the whites-only section of Lake Michigan, and the students usually always, their eyebrows go up when they have the whites-only section. We seem to have this perception that, you know, segregation was only occurring down in the south and that there was this beautiful utopia that existed up north, this land of, you know, freedom and milk and honey, sure. um, and it wasn't quite that way. <laughs> and Eugene was swimming. Uh, ventured over into the white section of the lake and was subsequently stoned by various people in the crowd there and drowned. And his drowning then uh, was obviously witnessed by a crowd of people, both black and white, um, who asked um, basically for there to be the people in the, in the crowd that threw the stones were white. They recognized them, these are the people who did it, and the police did not arrest anybody, which led to about three days of of rioting um, throughout the city. Um, that left countless, like tens of people dead and, and millions of dollars in damage. And it was just a kind of, not the brightest moment, the happiest moment in Chicago history, so. You wanna add anything to that, Josh? Sure, sure.
2: I mean, the, the thing that I would add, or the things that I would add would be sort of contextual perhaps around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of you know, 1919, really, you know, w- w- I'm sure that we often all have to have discussions with our students on you know, whether or not dates, Matter and and they don't r- really so long as you kind of uh, to to borrow a phrase from uh, a professor and colleague that you know uh, Jim Braywell, well Wayne Lee uh, there's sort of code hooks uh, or hooks to yeah. kind of under you know to kind of move things along and and certainly 1919 is one of those one of those years so you know you have. Uh, the, the great migration, uh, you know, that has been occurring and is occurring, you know, you've got the, the end of World War I, you've got tens of thousands of folks coming back to the city of Chicago, uh, having spent, you know, sort of time away, you've got very large conversations going on in the city over the role of the state, uh, you know, kind of during that time uh you've got the influenza pandemic which the you know the third wave is going to happen in 1919. uh you've got a large number of strikes uh that are happening in 1919 uh both in the city not far from the places that you're talking about uh and around the country uh including Mm -hmm. a uh, a movement that basically occupies Seattle uh, for a short period of time uh, in 1919, which uh, we can definitely, when we're talking about connections to 2020, get to that. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I would argue that, you know, 1919 is, you know, in addition to uh, these, you know, discussions that we're having on aspects of, of race and equity uh, is very much a, a contentious uh, and politically
1: charged time. Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah. And I would add in, too, that it, it also, I think, ties into, and we discussed this a bit beforehand, these other issues that are going on in the world, right? You have, along with the labor and the strikes, you have the communist revolution and resultant civil war in Russia, which is about to become the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And so these connections, too, to sort of broader political, global political change.
2: Yeah.
0: I think, you know, I was just rereading it, actually, and um, a couple of the poems I had missed. And one of the themes that I think kind of jumped out at me, um, there's a, there's a, a poem a jump, called The jump, jump Rope Poem, and it talks about how Eugene Williams went to the lake that morning, even though his mom told him not to go. Um, she told him that, you know, white kids can be mean and to be aware of that. Um, and that. And then she describes, like, you know, what happened to him is drowning, going down, down, the, way, the water's tugging at him and drowning him. And it reminded me as I was reading it of what we had alluded to earlier about um, in our previous discussion about Elijah McLean. But then I started like reflecting on that further and how the theme is kind of like just surviving in the United States or in America while black, right? Like the, yeah. this experience that goes back to the beginning and, and and what that must have been like to to start off first as slaves coming over here, trying to maintain your, your heritage as best as your customs as, as much as you can on the quiet um, so that you don't. You're not discovered and you're not punished um, to later on to the um, post-Civil War era. I mean, I'm, I'm skipping, I've been, I don't mean to be skipping slavery, but the idea of having to hide a lot when you're you know, a slave, how you think, how you feel, how, you know, everything in order to, to, to escape being punished. Mm-hmm. Um, to the Jim Crow era, where pretty much, you know, you look at a white person sideways or you whistle at a white woman or you, you know, you just walk across the street the wrong way and you're lynched. Um, Estimated four thousand people lynched uh, in the South during those years, and then coming up to the present, you know, we're hearing all those these stories recently of like, you know, and we kind of barbecuing while black, right? Um, Because and um, uh, just you know, what's the the, (laughs) first one? Could think of any. That was the first one that came to my mind. But essentially, it's living while black, right? Trying to walk into my house that I live in, into my condo with my key that I have, but having to prove that I live there. Right Anyway, the point is, I, I would I would put in this category sort of just the idea of just surviving. Right. Um, and that but that particular poem though reminded me of uh, Elijah McClain, the young man whose story, I think is not getting too much attention um, in Colorado, who died last year before the pandemic, before um George Floyd, um but was walking home basically from a convenience store and he was autistic, was wearing like a ski hat. And was stopped by police because they said that he was flailing his arms about and seemed suspicious. But when they have the recorder and they're, they're they're asking him questions, what comes out of his mouth is just completely indicative of his innocence, right? That he's he's saying, "I, I I'm an introvert. Um, I you know I don't mean any harm to anybody. I just want to go home. I live right here," um, right. And, and clearly indicating that there was obviously the young man with a disability. So to me, just resonated with me, just this idea of just like, I, I guess this, this particular poem of how you survive this experience um, um, while being a Black American. To, I anyone wants to jump off that? Sure, sure, uh, if, you don't, if you don't mind, Jim.
2: Uh, the, the two things, uh, you know, as you were, were speaking about this, Mary, and I thought the, you know, from, from reading through some of the poems, the, the emotion and the emotional experience, you know, that, that much of this poetry is very powerful right, with that. Uh, the two things that I was was thinking about uh, is, you know, as you're describing this idea of the history of living while black, right? Uh, obviously, this is something that none of us can relate to, mm-hmm. but we can, I think, and should, especially with our students it's for uh, for other, you know, faculty who would identify similarly, uh, to have sort of real and open and frank discussions about the meanings of white privilege. Mm-hmm. And the you know the manner in which I've always constructed this conversation with many of my students, you know, 2020 aside, uh, is being opus and honest with them about the reality of normality, uh, of that it is, you know, when, when some folks will hear the phrase privilege, mm-hmm. they will think that that connotes a certain kind of sort of separate you know, sort of, you know, when in reality, it's the privilege of the normality of the life in which I live, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, it it is not something that I I created, but it is something that, you know, existed in the world after I was born and was born into it and that kind of, of, you know, as you sort of say, you know, not having to worry about walking to my house and, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to open it, you know, you're not going to be accosted, you're not going to be asked about things, you're not going to be this, you're not going to be that. It is the privilege of the normal life in which you lead, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that is that normality. And the second thing that I was kind of thinking about then, you know, in in looking back, as you did uh, at the beginning of that, uh, is the 1619 Project, uh, Mm -hmm. which, you know, for for those listening to this conversation, if you're not familiar with it, uh, the 1619 Project was put out by the New York Times magazine, I believe about a year ago. Uh, And the idea was, they brought together a number of historians and and scholars of different disciplines, right, uh, to to talk about and to state that within our understanding of public history and the meaning of American identity, that we should take the foundation date of the United States, and we should move it from 1775 or 76, Mm -hmm. wherever you sort of, we we might normally put it at, right? Uh, And we should put it to 1619 Mm -hmm. uh, because of how centrally connected race has been to the American story Mm -hmm. from its founding. Uh, And, you know, whether you're someone who, if you've made it all the way through the 1619 project or not, there's all these different sort of stories and little tangents to it. The thing that I I sort of find interesting with it, you know, for one, right, it's obviously a good conversation point, right, with, with students and this kind of thing, or with you know, family and friends, uh, but also how politicized it has become already. Yeah. Uh, You know, it has become such a a politicized aspect of, um, you know, thinking about American identity over the course of the last year. I believe it's uh, Senator Tom Cotton from from Arkansas. Correct me if I'm wrong. He introduced a bill uh, basically to make the teaching of it in public school illegal uh, and like, oh, oops. okay. well, I guess I'm breaking the law according to Tom Cotton. I don't know. Uh, Senator Cotton. But, uh, you know, those are at least the two things for me, you know, that I I was thinking about, uh, you know, kind of as you were, were speaking.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and building off your second point, Josh, there's the idea that this is nothing new, right? Like, Mm -hmm. even, you know, when when I'm teaching the colonial period, I like to draw out the idea that you have these, you know, ideas of conspiracy, of rebellions, slave revolts, but even just the idea, right, that, like, um, the one I was just looking for, uh, there's there's a revolt that happens in Charleston, South Carolina in the seventeen hundreds when it was actually a freeman right? and mm-hmm. and again, that has students raising their eyebrows because we think the South and we think just slaves and free whites, and that 's it but no it 's a very nuanced thing, mm-hmm. but this idea of sort of trying to force this agenda right where wherever there's even the perception of uh, African Americans utilizing the rights that they in theory and on paper have right because he was a freeman he was a carpenter and he was plying his trade and this made the white establishment nervous so there's all this discussion of a revolt a conspiracy there's never any proof of any of this but it results in the execution trial and execution of like 20 people um you know and, and to me that was where my mind went reading this 1919 book is like it's the same cycle that repeated over and over again um across the nation's history and i think that also connects in with your point about the 1619. project. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. you know going back to josh's point about the white privilege right i have had students uh react, um, Get a little bit triggered by that state and by the term privilege and we've had discussion very frank discussions about it in more in american national government um and i've tried to explain just again kind of what what that means And it's kind of jumping off of what what josh was saying but mm-hmm. something that really resonated with me with me is again i can't know this as as a a, a white person who female who lives in a, a you know relatively safe area and i don't have to experience you know any type of of crime ever and i'm i'm i lead a very very happy, safe life for the most part. Um, but you know, our, co- our, our good, our colleague and my good friend uh, Shalita Shaw had talked to me before about how her her cousins and friends, male cousins and friends, excuse me, when they drive, they drive with their wallets on the dashboard always. Mm-hmm. And whenever I've shared that with people, like Asian people, they stop and they're like, "Oh my god, I can't, I can't believe that." it's not something that they have to think about. They don't have to think about where their wallet is or if they, if they reach something, you know, that, that, what, even just what happened just the other day in Kenosha, right? The video right. shows this man going to get into his car. Doesn't he, his, his hands are visible. He's going to get into his car. He doesn't appear to be reaching for anything, at least that, that we can see. There was an, apparently a knife in the car, but they found that afterwards. They didn't know it was there before. Mm. Um, and the officer begins to just grab his shirt and start shooting at him um and i think that's that's i try to make it as tangible as possible because i think that that's something that is so often misunderstood because people will always like default to well i never got any privilege no one ever helped me my take they take it as almost like you're negating their experience and i think that we have to approach it in a different way with our students. i think not just with our students i think with society in general um and i don't know if this like ties into like um uh robert uh, robin uh is it D'Angelo, um the white the um fragility um books that she's written but just the idea of people getting feeling that automatically that you're putting them on the spot or that they're guilty of something of having done something wrong and i think if we can get to a point where we say you haven't done anything wrong you're not guilty of anything right now you're not guilty of what was done 50 years ago or in 1619 but what you are guilty of or what you're responsible for is what you do moving forward what you do or do not do moving forward in your own life
2: the, the the What I'm hearing from you, uh, Mary, is the, you, it, you didn't start it, but don't enable it. Uh, yeah. You know, the, yeah. you know, and, and I, I agree it, it, in having these conversations with students, it can be unsettling and you, and we will hear that sort of, well, well, I, I don't benefit from this, you know, how does it relate to me? And the mm-hmm. manner in which I sort of try to talk about this, right, is the, the idea of being open and honest about my youth and my experiences growing up and this kind of thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. I came from, and, a an upper middle class suburb that, you know, was over 95% white. And I remember mm-hmm. as a kid, you know, being able to walk around with other kids who were white with toy guns openly in the community, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. of, and this was the eighties, uh, you know, ancient history, but it was the eighties. Uh, and, you know, they looked like real guns. There was yeah. no, you know, orange tip to it. Yeah. No, this sort of that and the other, no one thought anything of it. Mm-hmm at all. And I didn't think anything of it then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of it was, yeah, I'm out playing with my toy gun and it's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know, part of this thinking back on it and speaking openly about the realities of it is how, again, normal it can seem and how normal, you know, privilege can, can be, mm-hmm. uh, or the, you know, these days of, if I'm going to walk out of a, you know, pre in a pre-COVID era, uh, if I'm going to walk out of a a, a Walmart uh, and they're checking, uh, I mean, I I had this uh, occasion happen, you know, when they're checking receipts, right? And if they look at someone who uh, is uh, African American, uh, and I remember that, like, so you, sir, you have to come over here, uh, you know, I have to I have to check your thing, and and I walk over and they go, no, 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 you're fine, go ahead. Uh, you know, and I go, no, 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 no. You got to check mine too. Uh mm-hmm. If you're going to do this, you got to check mine too. Uh, You know, sort of that, that kind of thing Uh of, yeah, don't enable it. Don't, don't enable mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in hearing both of you speak as well, I'm not certain, are, are either of you familiar? I believe it's, is it state representative LaShawn Ford, uh, who recently proposed uh, that there should actually be a ban on the teaching of history uh because, <laughs> Well, his, his point, uh, so he is a state rep. Uh, his point is that clearly, and I, I think we all can agree on this, that when it comes to thinking about and teaching the history of race in America for a large portion of our time, you know, especially, you know, from the fifties up through the seventies, eight, you know, much of that has been marginalized and ignored. Uh, mm-hmm. and his point is that unless you can get to a, a a sort of standpoint of equity, uh, in really looking at the role that race has, played. well, then we should just stop teaching history. Uh, Mm -hmm. now I'm not sure I agree with that view. Uh, you know, that seems a little bit, but you know, his point about how we need to look at how the history of blackness to the earlier point has been ignored, uh, you know, I think is reasonable. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we certainly need to, to be having that discussion, which, you know, the three of us are now, but, but Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I had heard about that, but I had actually read a little bit more thoroughly. I What I recall reading was he had proposed a sort of hiatus and right. for the school, public schools in Illinois to revamp their curriculum to bring together, like bring in more diversity to, to yeah. the teaching of history, which, you know, I kind of smiled about because... L- as we're discussing here, right? We're always looking. Just you know, something happens in the news. We think of something that we recall reading about. And we go back and, mm-hmm. and and investigate and bring that into the curriculum to to make the you know help our students draw those connections out. Um, I think some of it is that, and and I think some of our responsibility as historians and you know getting back to the book, right? Um, the the purpose of the these poems was to Serve as a kind of creative means of getting people to look into this history. The um, the author cites this sort of poem um, that I actually managed to find and download um, the, after these 1919 riots, and and she touches on these number of times through the through the poetry, right, and and in the little um, preface to each poem, this massive report, right, that they had come up with after the riots. Uh, called The Negro in Chicago. And you can actually download the entire 800 plus pages. Um, at any rate, as but using these poems as a means to pull students into the history, pull people into looking at the history creatively, rather than just here's a book that I've written based on these, these archival tracts and so forth. To, to generate our, our emotions first so that we want to find out what actually happened to inspire someone to develop these poems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think, you know, as historians, that's kind of part of our makeup, part of our job description, really. Um, so I think it, it kind of comes back to, you know, good history is always going to be relevant. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. always going to resonate with something going on contemporaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. all.
0: Yeah. Um, Josh, uh, backing off of your earlier point, Yeah, um, you mentioned about uh, being at Walmart or Costco. They do the same thing at Costco. Right, sure. Uh, I, I keep mentioning, Uh I'm going to have to pay her some royalties after this because I keep bringing her name up again and again in this conversation, but you know, we had very um and frank discussions about the fact that, you know, and we've said it too, if we didn't work together, uh, she and I are are side by side, our desks are, are next to one another, And we just clicked from the moment that we met. But I will be honest, you, she's the first black person that I've gotten. I mean, I've, I've had, of course, people acquaintances that I've worked with, but to be on a level where I consider her to be family and she considers me to be family. You right. Know, where my mom died and she was there that day. It's like that kind of a, of a relationship. Sure. And, um, and and so in that, we've had these frank discussions that I think have, have opened up my eyes a lot. And in turn, I've tried to um, expose my, my stepchildren to that and my nieces and nephews as well. But she had a, an experience um, being in Neiman Marcus and walking around Neiman Marcus and having someone just kind of shadowing her. And she said, oh, can I, can I help you? And the woman said, oh, no, I'm just here to see if you need anything. And she's like, oh, well, you don't seem to be seeing if anybody else needs anything. Only you're looking to see if I need something. And my my stepdaughter had asked me a question. Well, well, what does it mean? What does racism mean? And I used that as an example to say, well, she this woman stereotyped Miss Shalita because she thought saw her as a black woman, and that automatically she thought in her mind she's up to no good. Right. And then she said, well, that's not very nice. <laughs> you know, like was right? <laughs> the, the simplest thing, right? And it's it's so true. So, um, but that's made me think so often though when I'm in these public spaces of, of and and. I, I try to be an empathetic person in general, I hope I am, and I think it's made me feel even more so and more aware um, of situations where um, I maybe didn't think of as much before where, you know, if you're, you, you know, you may be the only Black person in the room or you may be, you know, the only, um, whatever, in, in a situation where you feel kind of what that must feel like to be in that situation, and what that must feel like to be that person mm-hmm. um, and feel that you're, you're perhaps always being judged. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Do you want
2: to add something? Well, I just sort of two thoughts with with that. I mean, I think obviously, uh, you know, this year has been a year in which, you know, lots of, of you know, faculty have been having conversations with students, parents mm-hmm. have been having conversations, hopefully, with their children, uh, you know, positive and, and constructive conversations with their children. I'm, I'm re- reminded of recently taking my three young kids out to a park and uh, uh, there were, uh, there was a gate. You know, sort of around this park by a school, and uh, my kids were saying, "You know, Dad, let's let's hop the gate, let's go in." And uh, you know, I'm like, "Well, you know, uh, Dad, Daddy's not very good at that kind of thing. Daddy'll probably fall and break himself. You know, let's let's you know let's let's not do that." Um, and and basically, the the oldest is sort of why you know sort of what's what's going to happen, or the are the police going to come, or sort of that kind of thing. And I said, you know, maybe uh, they are. And I, you know, I try to be always open and honest with, with my kids as much as I can. And I said, you know, yeah, they, they might come. And I, you know, I said, well, what's going to happen? Uh, and I said, well, in all honesty, daddy's white, so probably not much. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, they'll probably just tell daddy not to do it again uh, mm-hmm. and just make sure you go. And mm-hmm. my, my five year old, uh, who is wise beyond her years, uh goes uh daddy what if what if you were black
0: mm-hmm.
2: and i and so then that led to a whole separate discussion mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know sort of that kind of thing uh, and then the other thing uh to kind of meld what you've been talking about and what what jim has been talking about as well is in thinking about the united states in in 19 of the the era of world war one so from 14 until we joined the war in 17 until 1919 you know part of my my research for my my dissertation has been all about the uh, what's called the state council of defense of illinois and it's this organization that kind of brings together all of these uh state administrative bodies and the federal uh, administrative, the federal sort of bureaucracy for the war, you know, the Committee of Public Information, all of that, mm-hmm. uh, and all the philanthropic organizations. So basically it's this big t- big tent government, right, that brings everything together.
0: Want well, to explain if, the public information because people might not know? Sure, that. sure, sure. So for those who are not f-
2: familiar, uh, it's it's kind of the propaganda arm of the, the federal government during the First World War. The whole idea was the, the American public needed to be told, what is the objective of the war? Really, what are we fighting for? Uh, and then getting that out really across all of the social medias that existed at that time. Uh, Now, you know, of course, they have posters, we have memes, you know, sort of that kind of thing. Uh, But, you know, the idea was typically in the conversation about what are we fighting for, right? That that goes to the question of what does it mean to be an American, and what is the role of the state in articulating what it is that we're fighting for? And so, you know, thinking about the poetry there and about this question of, of, of Blackness in 1917, 1918, 1918, is that the state very clearly, very, very clearly articulates in this particular period that the ideal American is white, uh, that the ideal American is 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 a guy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, is a man as well, but that the ideal American is white. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that's sort of an interesting backdrop uh, to mm-hmm. to all of, you know, kind of what we're sort of talking about here and what's going
0: mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I think it's also
0: for, I got yeah, go ahead.
1: But I think it's also pertinent to bring into the discussion, right, that um, as with every other conflict from the declaration on, African Americans served. Mm-hmm. And then that I played into this. I mean, one of the more poignant sections. Okay. Of the book that stood out to me were when these white gangs were trying to ride into the black neighborhoods and the, the men were defending their homes. Mm-hmm. With their, mm-hmm. and and the same thing happens, you know, a few years later in Tulsa mm-hmm. with, with the Tulsa riots when you know a uh, young man is accused of sexually assaulting a white elevator operated an African American man. Um, and and again, there's another sort of commonality we see across time, right? Um, Being an operator all black, basically. The, the <laughs> idea of youth. It's, it, you know, routinely in all of these, in all these tragic occurrences, right, it's youth. And oftentimes, you know, like when you were talking about the, problem uh, the, about drowning earlier, made me think of Emmett Till, right? Again, a, a youth and, and his mother warns him, this isn't, this may not be safe. This may not be a good idea. And a lot of times, you know, I mean, maybe Um, there were a lot of things that my mother warned me to do, or not to do, I should say, that I did. And (laughs) sometimes (laughs) I came home with resultant injuries, Uh, (laughs) you know, but, but I never had to worry about, like, if I walked you know, as uh, to speak to what you were saying, Josh, I never had to worry about, like you know, if if I went a few blocks over from my house, I may not come back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and well, that's tour a construction
0: whole... site. Sorry, Jim, excuse me. Yeah. To a construction site that you're jogging and you just happens in this construction site. And, right before, walked in, and this is the house going to look like, right? I've never had to think about that.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, like this. So, youth is a part of it, but also what was interesting to me with Tulsa, you know, so lynch mob forms, and the sheriffs actually tried to protect um, this African-American youth, right? And then the the men from the Black community in Tulsa, which was itself, as you both know, fairly affluent because of the oil mm-hmm. industry in the sound, um, but they came, and many of them were World War One veterans, and they were bringing their, their guns with them, and they offered to stand guard. You know, so and, and so. I think we also start to see this, you know. Um, well, actually, again, in in many instances, and I think it's interesting how this falls out of the history uh, when we, you know, my focus is the is the American Revolution, and you have African American troops um, from the the first and second Rhode Island, and many of these men go on to be farmers and so forth, and and they are. Pardon the, the expression, but I think it's very apropos. Whitewashed out, right? We we don't talk about, it. Um, John Lawrence from South Carolina, uh, son of Henry Lawrence, who was one of the members of the Continental Congress and a, and a slave owner. John wanted to raise a unit of, a uh, black unit for South Carolina, to help defend the state, and that never happened. It was shut down. But what's really interesting is. Of all the founders um, in South Carolina, the Laurens are the only ones who do not have any monuments.
0: Mm-hmm. So again, you know the,
1: the history that is remembered, the history that is preserved, and what is effaced, what is mm-hmm. removed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. over time.
0: Um, Jim, before I, I was going to pivot to another thing in the in the book, but actually, you both just reminded me of that. Um, <clears throat> that um, bringing up Tulsa. I cannot remember where I watched it. It might have been that same, there's a documentary I was bringing up to you guys before on, on Amazon Prime called, I think it's called The Uncomfortable Truth, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's, uh, there's a young man talking about learning history and having no idea about Tulsa. And like hearing it for the first time, he's like, what? Like, I grew up in Tulsa. I've known, like, I, I, I thought I knew all about Tulsa. I've never heard yeah. this in school. And yeah. now to hear this as, as an adult, like it's 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 really jarring. Maybe it wasn't from the documentary, regardless, but it's the idea of what kind of history are we teaching? It alludes to that point again, are we are the things that we have always left out because again, who was writing the, the, the history at the time um, and, and and who was basically teaching it in our, our colleges and in our schools and whatever, to know. I mean, well, and, and this is a little bit different, obviously. I, if,
2: if it's okay, um, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, kind of building off what both of you were saying, right? Uh, so, you know, when it comes to thinking about sort of this teaching of history and, and building off of this poetry and thinking about, you know, this story sort of connecting all the way to now, right, certainly this has been a year of discussions around, con, you know, Confederate monuments uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. discussions of this kind of thing. And there's, I think, you know, sort of two points to, to make with this, right, you know, mon- Monuments aren't history, right? Monuments are, you know, a a virtue signaling in granite form, right? Uh, you know, they're a, you know, a, a statement on the part of the public. Uh, uh, you know, making a value judgment about something, a positive value judgment about something, right? A section of the public making a value judgment sort of about something. And they, I think, as well as, particularly K through 12 curricula, because we're talking about sort of knowledge about things like uh, Tulsa or say Springfield in 1908, or say Detroit during World War II, or the Harlem uh, riot, in, you know, during World War II, right? There are many individuals who know this history and have written on this history extensively. It just happens that uh, many of them happen to be uh, not white uh, and they're not invited to write the K through 12 textbook. Uh, and you have then the power as well of the lost cause movement, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which we're all familiar with, but you know, for those who are not, right, the lost cause movement right, is, is started really in the wake of the civil war by Southern whites Uh, to try to look back upon their objectives and on the American South and on the Confederacy as a measure of pride, right? To be prideful in what they did. Uh, And their movement has so ingrained itself within the American story over the last century and a half that it has become history for many uh, because it's what they've been taught. Uh, you know, you, you need to take Toledo out of it and Springfield out of it. Right. It's why, you know, world war II becomes this idea of everybody coming together. That's good. Many folks came together, but you know, uh, there's also this other reality that's going on here. Uh, you know, one of the most common tropes that lost cause folks like to bring forward is they argue that what, what tens of thousands, right. Uh, of African Americans served in the Confederacy. Right. None of that's true. That's a lie. There's no actual evidence to bear that out, right? Uh, But if you look on the website of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, right, when they have freely downloadable curricula for middle school teachers, right, what's there? A story about Black Confederates and racial harmony in Alabama and all this other nonsense that existed. Uh, It didn't exist at that time. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's a, a good part of this, too, right? You know, in as much as, you know, this is, to bring it back to that earlier point with these poems, right, if the point of this is to, you know, engage people, right, it's engage, you know, trying to engage folks because, you know, what do we have to get past? What do we have to get around, right? We have to get around multiple generations that were force-fed the lost
0: cause. Mm-hmm, hmm mm-hmm. yeah. Well, Josh, to augment that, as dear leader Vladimir Putin, uh, history history should be positive. So keep that in mind. That's why we're erasing history of gulags throughout Russia, because history should be positive. So that's why happy happy slaves, happy slaves were serving in the Confederate Army. Just happy to be there. So happy to serve. <laughs> <laughs>
1: this line sort of plays into... Um, just after the Oil riots in 1943 in Michigan, Joseph Goebbels gave a speech wherein he said, and I quote, you see, we don't have race problems in Germany. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> exactly. Well, no, but there's a really <laughs> profoundly evil
0: reason you another don't. another problem going on there, <laughs> <laughs> which actually it's funny to say that, because one of the, and we can maybe come back to that quote, but there's um. Um, one of the there's a, a Hannah Arendt quote in the in, in the book about the most evil is done by the people who who never make up their minds to be good or evil. You know, and, and mm-hmm. we come back to that. But I was going to say, um, if it's okay, I was going to uh, pivot to kind of a similar theme. I think we could talk about so similar things. But something
1: else in in the book is that
0: is that okay with both of uh... you? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Quick pause. You might want to edit out Amanda us getting giving our twisted historical humor. <laughs>
0: Oh no, that's the best part. they gotta keep that in <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Comrade, just always know that it should be positive anyway um comrade. okay so, so comrade <laughs> another uh another, another one of the poems that that resonated and i I was telling you guys before I'm not much of a poetry person. My office mates who are all com faculty literature faculty i i i I that one to them that is their area of expertise but um, the, the poem talks about the idea of removing the problem, right? The problem being, you know, the black slave who's in this country. I mean, what do we do with them? We have to remove the problem. Remove them back to Africa, Back to Africa, right? Because the people who are here now still, you know, know where they came from in Africa. Um, but the, oh, I, I find it just, it's ironic that the, and I think we still continue to do this, that the onus is on basically the, the victim as opposed to on the perpetrator, um, in this case, so the idea that, that it's they're they're the problem, right? Not that not that you know slavery began in 1619. Here we began bringing over people against their will, but it's the idea that you know that they're a problem that need to be that need to be gotten rid of. It's their fault almost. And I don't know if you if I'm taking that too far, or if you both agree with I, that. But it's, I do. That, yeah, yeah. Um, It does seem to be a I, bit of it. It just seems to me that that there's um, there have been so many opportunities in history in American history that have been wasted. And I look at it for, and I, when I think of what's going on now in 2020, or I think I look at even poverty rates proportion to the populations and 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 amongst of incarceration, among blacks, particularly for, for black Americans. And I, I think about, you know, kind of what happens post civil war, right? You know, and this, this opportunity that was there that, you know, for this 40 acres and a mule or this opportunity to own some land and perhaps to kind of gain a, a footing in society and what that could have meant moving forward. Had that right. taken place, I mean, then there are multiple wasted opportunities. But just, I mean, we were talking before about the different civil rights acts of the time yeah. and uh, sure. the 14th and 15th amendments but they were never enforced until 100 years later. Um, just you know, just a hundred years, no big deal. Um, but just that, you know, <laughs> yeah. what could that have meant? I think for for the black experience in this country, had that had Reconstruction been treated differently, and and had they, that opportunity been been given as opposed to let's just go back to the way that things were as best as we can, but not call it slavery, just kind of twist it, twist the name a little bit um, and call it black codes and, you know, Jim Crow laws,
1: et cetera. So, um, um, sure. Unless Jim, unless yeah. Jim, you, mute. I can't, unless Jim uh, wants to jump. I mean, I, I think yeah. we're both um, ready to go on this one, but yeah, <laughs> it, it always, it always sort of shocks my students when I tell them about, you know, the, Civil Rights Act of 1866 and how it basically paraphrases what becomes the 14th Amendment. But then it takes, you know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 for this to even really begin. Because again, it's, and I think one of the problems is that when I teach modern American history, it's like, well, no. You know, it, it's not like LBJ, which again is its own really interesting sort of irony. Right here's the the white Texas Democrat um, breaking away from the Solid South, and and I think in you know in, and shattering the New Deal coalition in in the process because he felt that this was the right thing to do. Which again, I think is a great you know. Now, granted, in many many other ways, LBJ is a profoundly flawed individual, and I'm not gonna. Try and lionize him, but he, he didn't say that him. to Robert Caro. <laughs> <laughs> um, but who is it? Uh, sorry, not that we but ever he, get know, he was track.
0: flawed, but he did, yeah, he, yeah, he did, did the right the thing boy, on, on that occasion. But passed. the
1: idea that two things one, that just because he signs this piece of legislation does not mean that Jim Crow ends, does not mean that, that the violence and the thought ends, it takes about another. Really, at least decade of of this being a something the federal government is going to do um, mm-hmm. that the federal government takes upon itself. Um, but also the I you know that that okay so there's this century of yeah just missed opportunity right like where the the north kind of turns its back on. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because a, a combination of things, right? The, the scandals of Brandt's second administration, the economic downturn, the de- the depression of the late nineteenth century that starts in eighteen seventy three. All the, but the and and very successful propagandizing on the part of Southern whites to emphasize, you know, to point out all the flaws, right? To point out all the places where where to make a story that reconstruction isn't working the way the North mm-hmm. wants it to, mm-hmm. right. To spin it, which again, goes back to, and, and, it, and Josh, to your point, right. I think another thing that, that is important in the way history is presented is, you know, bringing up the fact that Texas is the, the ninth largest textbook market in the country, mm-hmm. which brings with it a, a huge amount of power over publishers. Mm-hmm to say, this is how we, will not just what we want in the textbook, but how we want it. Um, There was a, and I'm sure both of you remember reading about this a few years ago, uh, the Texas Board of Education altered one of their U.S. history textbooks to read. It had read, the American Civil War was fought over slavery, regional difference, economic considerations. And it went from that to the American Civil War was fought over states' rights, which I always say to my students, is: was the perception by some states that you had the right to own people.
0: Right,
1: uh, states' but rights to state do, rights. Has, do know, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. because it really is, is obviously slavery, right? Um, but you know, states' rights, uh, economic differences, regionalism and, sla- oh yeah, oh, there was that slavery thing we should put at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but the positioning of words, small right? print, it's tiny prints, like de-emphasize what <laughs> for anyone who even comes to the American civil war objectively with no knowledge and looks at it and goes, hold it. This is really about slavery. <laughs> slavery.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: To go ahead.
0: No, you know, go go Joshua, ahead. Joshua, go yeah. yeah. First.
2: Um, to, to build on, on what Jim was saying and to kind of, uh, kind of uh, go back to what what Mary was saying as well, uh, both of these sort of lines of, of conversation and thought have me thinking about really sort of a couple of things. I mean, coming from Illinois, you know, coming from the land of Lincoln, coming from all of this, right, you know, I'm sure both of you have seen in your classes, uh, both at Moraine and, and anywhere else, the idea of, you know, the usual K-12 through 12 line is is what right is that the the South is is bad because the South believed in slavery and you know generally yeah they're bad they in but the North was for freedom so that means everybody in the North believed in equality
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: and you know I a, a, at least for me one of the most difficult things I have when I talk in the uh, the first half of the American Survey is getting folks to disconnect the support for abolitionism with right. the idea of racial equality just because you might think that slavery's bad
0: mm-hmm.
2: has no bearing on whether or not the person actually thinks that those who are not white deserve a place within the american story
0: mm-hmm. i
2: mean the yeah. you know the role of the american colonization society right in the years before the civil war Right, I think is is powerful and important. Right, is the, you know, folks who are saying absolutely slavery's bad. We need to get rid of slavery, but yet at the same time saying nope, nope. Uh, anybody who is of African ancestry, they gotta go, uh, and we'll help pay for it. Uh, you know, sort of, and that kind of thing, and individuals like Andrew Jackson and Lincoln and others. Right are at, at different points, of course, associated with this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's sort of one sort of interesting aspect of this. And then the other one is, I think that, you know, with with these poems, right, sort of with our understanding of it, right, we we need to be thinking more and shaping this conversation more about white anxiety.
0: mm mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm.
2: You know, yeah. I, I think that that's really a big part of this. I mean, Jim, you mentioned mm-hmm. youth earlier, you know, uh, as a measure for, for driving a lot of this. You know, youth, I would say, attached to anxiety. I would say, you know, you know what are a lot of these actions about but anxious white men? Uh, you know, you know w- w- what is much of the, the initial KKK about but concerns over preserving white female purity? right uh you know sort of these these anxious white men who want to sort of do these things right you know you're talking post-civil war mary and i'm thinking of um and, and jim as well and i'm thinking of what was it you know family guy you know the tv show tried to have a comment on this a while back and it had a uh, individual who looked enslaved uh, a white individual who looked like the owner right he unlocks his chains you know and the, the two step away a little bit uh and the white man looks to hit the the enslaved individual and goes we're cool now right Uh, you know, uh, which, you know, to me, I think is, of course, the, you know, pop cultural sort of 21st century, you know, way to kind of comment on that, right? Mm -hmm. But they're making a statement about anxiety, right? Uh, And it is that anxiety, I think, that gets us to conversations about 2020, and about conversations about tactics of protest, uh, or tactics of opposition, and what folks are okay with what folks are not okay with. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, these days, most folks will say they're for something, but what does that really mean in terms of the tactics of achieving it, right? Sort of the, the brass tacks of that. And we can, you know, take that back to the 60s, right? Again, the same thing when it comes to anxiety about different stuff, because you can have folks who are anti-war, but they're still going to be sexist and this misogynistic as hell. You know, uh, you can still have folks who say they're pro-Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 1965, but they're definitely not for the ERA, uh mm-hmm. you know uh there's sort of those aspects to it too so that white anxiety particularly white male anxiety
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh you know i think is is a big part of of, of this
0: abolitionists yeah. who are okay with abolition of slavery but not okay with women's suffrage Mark, right we met, saw that a lot too well, well, a oh and well,
1: it was really interesting josh as you we were talking back to your first point um one of the things i found too the those um Soldiers in the first and second Rhode Island, at, at, both know at the end of the war, right? They get bounty lands, but where are those lands? They're out in the Ohio Valley. Like, okay, you're manumitted, you're free. Go over there, <laughs> right? you Isn't know the where problem? where you're going to be where you're going to be out of sight. And again, you know, uh, demonizing the victim, right? Here you yeah. have agreed to fight because. Uh, the white merchants in Rhode Island are going to leave their businesses and, and you know or their farms for eight years, uh, but will and we will give you basically your freedom and maybe the chance if you don't die probably of disease, of um, uh, you know some some bounty lands out here on the periphery, but that's that's all you'll get. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm.
0: I think, like kind of piggybacking off of both of you, I started thinking about. Um, this, this notion of anxiety that you were both talking about, I think part of that, or maybe a lot of it, is connected to the idea that we've never come to terms with all of this as a country. We've never had like sort of our our truth and reconciliation commission like we did in South Africa, yeah. and for those who don't know what we're talking about it, at the end of apartheid in South Africa, which was very very similar to our system here. Um, the end of segregation there, apartheid literally was. Already- um, the, the new government under Nelson Mandela, the first black president of South Africa, instead of saying, okay, you know, removing the problem, right, white people get out, which is what Robert Mugabe <laughs> did uh, next door in, in Southern um, he said, no, you have to stay and we all need to work together, but we can't we can't work together and move forward unless there's some kind of a reckoning with the past. The truth, truth and Reconciliation Commission to bring forward a victim of police brutality and if the the police officer in question is willing to participate as well because it was was contingent upon that the two of them come together essentially and the victim addresses addresses him and and vice versa they go back and forth and they basically decide what is the right course of action and i get it there are a lot of different like cultural differences between ourselves and 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 in south africa uh and that make it possible in in south africa that would be more difficult here um but i think there's such i mean to part excuse me, the pump, but that's the truth to it, right? There's a reason why it's called it. If you can't, you can't yeah. move forward, you cannot move forward unless you it, And you can keep putting band-aids on bullet holes, I'm sorry, pardon the horrible pun, everywhere you go, but those bullet holes obviously keep happening for real. I and and you know, if we don't address it, what are we gonna do? And I, I feel like um, I was heartened to see that at Brain that we are gonna actually start having that conversation ourselves, because I think it's, it's been a long time coming. Um, but people are afraid to have that conversation. They're afraid, I, I think it's understandable. People don't want to offend somebody else. They're afraid to say something, they may have the best of intentions, but they're afraid that they're gonna say something that will offend another person. Um, but unless we can kind of create a space that feels comfortable enough and safe enough for people to say, to be able to talk, um, and which sometimes things might come out the wrong way or may not be said, you know, perfectly, but um, if that person is not, you know, punished for saying that, we're not gonna ever be able to move forward. <laughs> At least in my when, mind, long way to go still with that. Sorry, go ahead.
2: What, what I was going to say, you know, kind of is, of course, agreeing with you uh, and saying that, you know, my, my first thought in coming, you know, to this while, while you're talking was, you know, in thinking about how, like, if I'm going to be asked to give a public talk about something. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I obviously give off a certain vibe. I obviously give off a certain sort of, you know, uh, look, I'm obviously sort of equated with a sort of certain identity. The assumption if I'm going to give a public talk, you know, is that generally I'm going to do it to a largely white audience in a library or something somewhere and that largely I'm not going to say anything offensive. I'm not going to say anything mean. I'm not going to use a naughty word. I'm mm-hmm. not going to say anything that everybody disagrees with or isn't nice. Right. Uh, that everybody's and it, in some ways it's expected of me then uh, to make sure to bring it back around to your comment about Putin, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that it's positive, Right, that it's 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 an overly positive story. And I think it goes to the other part of this conversation, right? So these are, you know, the, the purpose of this poetry is for us to get a sense of this experience. You know, if we're not, you know, if we're not black and, and you know, of to get it, understand, you know, kind of just a little about what these individuals endured, how they lived their lives, how they experienced this kind of thing, you know, because uh, of the history that they have sort of been, you know, sort of were to. And the other thing that I sort of was thinking about with this is the, not only the coding of my lecture, right? Is the idea of, I try often, cause you know, I know I will get equated to like, oh, you know, Fulton's a purveyor of sort of dadish history, right? Uh, the, you know, trying to sneak in some equity as much as I can of the idea of, you know, telling folks it's okay to talk about things that aren't positive. Mm -hmm. But yet at the same time, be prideful of something, right? You know, the idea that it's okay to say that you're prideful about where you're from, but also be realistic and honest about where you're from. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, am am I happy that we won World War II? Yeah, because Nazis are bad. (laughs) But... Good, people. But, Josh, just saying. Uh, sorry. no. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist I know. I know, I Sorry, but, but it's the um, you know, it's the you know, it, it's possible for me to say, you know, am I prideful that we won? Did a lot of good things come out? Yeah. Are we perfect in this process? No, we're not, and it's okay to be open about that. And for us, it is. For other folks, it's not. And I, I think that that's what part of that conversation is, right? It's about the what does the politicization of history mean uh, mm-hmm. for us versus what does it mean sort of for other folks? I mean, mm-hmm. we largely, of course, uh, within our you know higher education environment, have a certain measure of freedom of as long as we generally tell the truth within this set period of time and we hit what our objectives are, we can kind of go wherever we want with it. Whereas for folks in a K through 12 environment, obviously that's a little bit more circumscribed Uh, and who has the oversight in that, not just in Illinois, but in Texas to Jim's earlier point Mm -hmm. or other States uh, Mm -hmm. as well. But
0: yeah. And if we can't agree on a shared reality, which seems to be the problem. So in other words, how do we come to a truth, a common truth, if we can't even agree on what's a shared reality. And I think that's, one of the biggest fundamental problems that we have right now. And and because we can't even agree on it, So how do you agree on what is history and what's quote unquote factual if people can't even agree on a basis of reality, right? Going back to the slavery thing the, and the reasons for the Civil War.
1: Yeah. Well, and I wanted to, to chime in on one of the points both of you had made too. You know, when we have, as you were mentioning, Mary, having this discussion of race and equity at the college among our colleagues, um, I don't necessarily know that we, that there's a way to create a comfortable space mm-hmm. I, I mean i always tell my students when we when we talk about slavery in, in the history survey look I, I realize most of you probably aren't going to want to talk about this it's a very really uncomfortable topic mm-hmm. i don't think it should be a comfortable topic mm-hmm. we're talking about humanity's inhumanity to itself mm-hmm. like there's there this and and i think if we can accept the idea that yeah, these are going and again, I agree though wholeheartedly with the idea that yes, if you misspeak or if you you know, we're at an institution of learning. Where else are you going to be able or should you be able more to experiment with and to learn from misspeaking, mm-hmm. misunderstanding? Yeah. Not if mm-hmm. We're not do if we're not telling students or sharing with students the the means, the tools that we've been given over the years of how to express ourselves
0: mm-hmm. and how to
1: express those points, as uncomfortable as they may be. Yes. What in fact are we doing as right. an institution of higher learning?
0: Absolutely, absolutely, Jim. And when I said safe, I didn't mean like the idea of a safe space because I think you both know me well <laughs> enough to know that I don't.
1: Yeah. yeah. I don't
0: <laughs> safe spaces. What I meant was, but yeah, just the idea that I, I write a caveat in my syllabus and I, I, I go into depth and say, you know, we're not, all, we don't all come from cookie cutters. And, and I, I, want, I want to hear your opinions because I often learn from my students. It's usually like pop culture references that I have zero clue about that they teach me about, but you know, I want to know their perspectives and where they come from. But sure. I can't get them to open up about these topics that are uncomfortable to talk about. Um, talking about race relations or the, the upcoming election or whatever it might be, unless I create an atmosphere where they feel that it is comfortable for them to say it. And then if they do misspeak, um, and I have students, like you know, a couple of other students, you know, kind of uh, jump in and, and uh, all over that person that's maybe made that comment, I immediately will will diffuse that. Because I said that, you know, let them, just let them talk, because otherwise that person's not gonna wanna open up their mouths again and say something. And they're maybe, they're trying to get to that point perhaps where, you know, that light bulb might go off and they might start thinking about something differently. Um, but if you can't get them to open up to begin with, you're never, you're never going to reach that point. So that's, that's what I meant when yeah, I said...
1: No, no, I, I wasn't... I,
0: I... Sure were not saying it, but I wanted to qualify it myself. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, I, I think we're, I, Mary, you and I are both birds of a feather on this, I think, so...
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and I also... I, excuse me, I'm sorry if I... I also... I share my opinions with my students because I, I tell them like, you're in college. You're not, you're not 15-year-olds, you're not 10-year-olds. I think you can, you can manage to, to have an opinion, you can manage to disagree with me. But again, I make it comfortable enough where they know that they're never being graded on their opinions. They're just being on their, their they're graded on their ability to convey their opinion. Um, and I, I think I I hope I do a pretty decent job of, of making them feel comfortable enough to do so, because I've had students there the completely opposite, polar opposite of me politically. Retake my classes again, so I think that maybe is a sign that they know that they're that they're, com- they're in a safe space that they can they can yeah. they can speak freely. And never take- so, so, but where else do you have that exchange of ideas otherwise?
2: And I think you know to to build on what both of you are saying, this goes, of course, to the importance of academic freedom, particularly in mm-hmm. higher education. Uh, you know, typically, if I'm going to be uh, teaching the the first half of the American survey, right, if I'm, you know, Jim's obviously the, the expert when it comes to the American Revolution, but when I, you know, in a pre-COVID era, if I'm talking about the 1760s and sort of that politically charged environment, you know, kind of leading up, you know, into the revolution, talking about, you know, political protests and sort of what's okay and what's not okay, you know, what I, what I usually do is I, I have students since I'm not a writer of poetry. I tried once when I was 12 and it was very bad. Uh, you know, it was mostly, well, you know, poems about Sega, just, they don't really work. You know, uh, Sega and G.I. Joe's, you know, it's not, it's not good. And baseball cards, it's not good. Um, you know, uh, Ode to bad baseball card gum, you know, that, that's, it's bad, uh, you know uh but the you know what i I usually try to do is i is i try to get students into groups and have them talk about what they consider to be an acceptable tactic or form of protest uh and it's you know with the idea being of you know most of them will say uh you know you can't uh you can't basically many of them will say you can't do anything that would infringe upon the 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 life of anybody else in any way shape or form and how they're leading it uh, to which I sort of go, oh, okay, well, you're against the founding of the country then, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in, in many ways. And it, it, it can become a little charged. Uh, you know, uh, I've, I've had students, you know, say, you know, incredibly uncomfortable things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I- including, you know, especially in recent years, after uh, Colin Kaepernick, and, you know, the 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 pro you know the, the proclivity for for folks more recently to to kneel during the national anthem right mm-hmm. is a more uh, sort of common form of protest and sort of what that meant say you know akin to the '70s and early '80s of maybe burning the flag right or sort of that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, and you know how charged you know of an environment that is and you know to your point Mary about Uh, You know, sharing opinions, you know, sort of this kind of thing of and and letting students know, right, sort of what what it's okay for someone for someone in my position or your position in the classroom to do. Right. What Mm -hmm. it's all right to do, that it's absolutely okay. Uh, because some will get upset. Right. Some will sort of say, well, well, you can't tell us that you can't say, no, actually, I can. (laughs) Uh, Whether I choose not to is up to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't tend to that often. Uh, mm-hmm. but what I try to make it clear is what's the boundary of what's okay and what's not okay mm-hmm. to try to say, you know, maybe I'm not often comfortable with sharing this, that or the other, but it's absolutely okay for faculty members to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that is part of that measure of, of, you know, being in, college of being, uh, you know, sort of in a, you know, uh, having the, 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 the safety to be uncomfortable, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, yeah. uh, sort of that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: That's a nice, uh, that's kind of a nice way to put it. I are at 205, so I don't know if we are uh, kind of, I think it's about 55 minutes that we've been going for or 50 minutes now. Uh, So is there anything that anyone else wants to add, like in terms of just kind of some, maybe some closing thoughts about um, what we talked about or um, do we leave it there with you? We just kind of (laughs) that it's we have safety in our classroom. It's a safe space for you to be able to open up and express yourself. And anyone want to add anything to that? It's, I know it's kind of. Weird, I'm talking. Yeah, go ahead. I, sure. I mean,
2: the the only thing I would say is, if you're someone who has been listening to this and and you're you know interested in that kind of thing, you know, outside of taking our classes, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, so, you know, I would say, you know, they're one of the wonderful parts about the 21st century, right, is, of course, the wide proliferation of resources. Right. So, you know, if you you heard part of this discussion about white privilege or white anxiety or blackness or sort of this kind of thing, and you've been wondering sort of more about them. Right. There's many, 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 many wonderful resources that you can check out freely both Mm -hmm. from the Moraine Library or from your local library to to learn a lot more,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, right, about sort of these kinds of things. The University of Chicago put together a great digital map uh, on 1919 in Chicago and where every single racial incident was going on during the riots and everything sort of that was happening, right? Digital mapping software for, uh, you know, for those events, you know, that would be a great resource for someone who's really interested in this poetry. Uh, You know, we have you know eyes on the prize right the documentary series from the eighties yeah. right uh from the looking at, at sort of race relations from the fifties through the seventies right American experience right the jim Crow museum uh on 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 racial sort of stereotypes from Ferris state University there's lots of wonderful resources to go and learn more
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah. even the report oh. sorry mary but even that report that we were. That right. many of these poems is base, are, are based off of is available free to you as a PDF file online. You can you can check it out for yourself and see how this commission looked at things mm-hmm. with your own eyes, you know, and evaluate what their findings for yourself. And I think that's that's kind of the key that we're after is that you know we, we use this as a starting point to make to, to initiate the discussion and to look into these things, but really you know developing the viewpoint is up to every individual to do for themselves in the end.
0: Sure. Sure. I was going to say, and I, I hope this is not like a Debbie Downer comment to end this with, but I'm just, I'm noticing that we know we, we alluded briefly to, you know, people like George Floyd or Jacob Blake or, uh, Elijah uh, mm-hmm. but we haven't talked that much about it, um, in our conversation, but I, I think the point of it is that all of this is so interrelated that it's, it's, it just, it hasn't stopped. So right. you know, what we're talking about, Eugene Williams, correlates completely with what just happened to Jacob Black the other, Jacob Blake the other day. So I just, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to be that, on just, a sad on a on a depressing well, note, but that's just kind of where it leaves yeah. me.
2: Well, and I I I think to your, I mean, it's okay to be sad. It's yeah. okay to be depressed, mm-hmm. right? And it's okay uh, you know, to then read more and do more, Mm -hmm. uh, and to, to Mm -hmm. channel that, uh, and to do what you can, right. Yeah. Uh, What was it? Um, you know, maybe it's just because my, my kids watch so much of it now on Amazon prime, but, uh, uh, you know, reading rainbow, uh, you know, don't take my word for it, you know, sort of that, that kind of phrase, uh, you know, that it's, you know, I think that does have meaning here, you know, go out and do things right get involved right get active uh you know uh if you if you feel you know sort of you know concerned about this uh and and want to do more then do more
0: right absolutely
2: yep